Welcome to Desiring Brethren Podcast. Uh, I got this. Hey. Uh, <laughs> this I'm, I'm really nervous. I'm <laughs> this episode. This is uh, this is going to be an interesting episode. Normally, our, our thing is normally giving somewhat or, mm. or less somewhat thought out opinions mm-hmm. on topics that not too many people care about. And this episode, we are trying to give hopefully very well thought out opinions on something a lot of people care about. So like, wait, 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 (laughs) that's a total reversal. Okay. Okay. There's no pressure, but we better do a good job. This is kind of good because there's been a lot of listeners that are like, can you guys do more serious stuff? Like we get it. You guys have like a goofy thing going for you, but come on, like get to it. Yeah, I'm one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Who's with yeah. us today? All the listeners already know who we are, but you've been hearing this fourth voice. Mm-hmm. Will they we- be able to differentiate it from yours, though, Dave? Like, do they just assume there's three voices and one of us is schizophrenic? One like, has <laughs> that sort of pure, undiminished, perfect Alberta tone. Mm. And then the other yeah. one, <laughs> and then the other one isn't like isn't. that at all. Joining us is my brother Joel. <laughs> hey well, Joel, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Hello, thank you. It's good to be here. <laughs> if you hear a little slur in his voice, that's from the craft beer we're drinking. In <laughs> <laughs> and if you hear an engine in the background of Jackson and Dave, it's because they're running their trucks the whole podcast. <laughs> we only run diesel, folks. I hope that you remember that. Yeah, um, it's it's very great to have Joel with us. Mm-hmm. If I think if we polled everyone who knew our family and asked them who should have a podcast, <laughs> <laughs> I think it w- it might even be unanimous. It would definitely be a landslide win that they'd say Joel. Joel was like one of the first people who introduced me to the world of blogging, and oh. so. If I can be the podcasting, the podcaster Joel Short to a new generation, I mean, mm. that that's all we can ask for. That's the highest star. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, all of this is true. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was a legend in my time, but nobody blocks anymore, so I'm just, I'm going to try this out. <laughs> so the reason we brought Joel on was Joel oh. and Tanner just finished a, a one-week summer course at Regent. Just a light, you know, it was a pretty light course, right? You know, just, uh, it was difficulties in the Old Testament. That's what it was called? Yes. Uh, Old Testament difficulties. Old Testament difficulties. Colon. Uh, well, I don't know. I don't know if I should say all three of the subjects because we're, we're not going to address all three of the subjects. So right. let's just say it was a course about Old Testament difficulties, one of which we are going to talk about today. Yes, and that being creation. Mm. <laughs> I'm going to direct these questions at both of you, I guess, but we sort of want to listen to Joel more than Tanner. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but uh, like, how, did, how was the course? Just it, it, I was asked this. Did the course, it's a one-week course on difficulties in the Old Testament. Did it put you any more at ease, or are you left more uncomfortable? Is it more difficult now? It, I, I think I can, I think I can honestly say that I am, 
slightly more at ease than I was before. No way. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think, I mean, the bar for that was very low. (laughs) (laughs) Very low. And uh, Tanner, where was your bar at? Uh, I, that... I mean, let's be real. I know we're like, this is jokes, but, you know, that wrecked me. (laughs) This week has been the worst, but very good. I mean, very... (laughs) The worst, um, but very good. So nice. Worst, but very good. You know, I've been been telling myself over and over, when you wrestle with God, you walk away with a limp, but also a blessing. And trying to remember that every time I get into, you know, tiger pose once again for another match, <laughs> a.k.a. Monday, Monday to Friday this week. It's been a wreck, but a good wreck. Hmm. That's really good to hear, I think. For the nerds out there, who is your prof? Our prof was uh, Tremper Longman Third. <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. What kind of name is I'm- Tremper and you're the third one is so good. Yeah, well, you only get a name like Tremper if you're the third one. (laughs) But, uh, I mean, for my money, he he is the best Tremper so far. Mm. I think by by a wide margin, really. Mm. Take that, Tremper. That's to our other Tremper listener. It's like, oh. Uh, So, uh, Joel, why don't you... I don't even know... I seriously don't even know how to transition very well, but... Um, That's a transition. Why don't you lead us off with... You've been thinking about creation for a long time, I think. Yes, that's true. Sort of how to deal with the biblical accounts and and other things and such. So why don't you lead us through either one of your longstanding uh, difficulties with creation? Yeah, so uh, I think... Um I, I want to bring into this another uh, professor who I actually studied with uh, last year for a week, who is uh, John Walton. I, I think it's fair to say, I mean, no one has said this to me, but I, I, I'm just going to uh, go ahead and say he, he's probably the foremost scholar of Genesis uh, who is working today. Um, wow. and. And so I, I think I, uh, my perspective on Genesis 1 and Adam and Eve has uh, certainly been shaped a lot by his work. Um, I, I don't agree with him on everything, and I think we'll, we'll, we'll get to some of the parts where I disagree. Um, but I, I guess I want to uh, talk a little bit about his perspective on the, uh, the story of creation in Genesis 1. I think when... When we, when anyone in our culture opens up Genesis one and reads it, um, we think this is this sounds like the story of when God created the world. He created, you know, like all this physical stuff. He created um, the land, the animals, the plants, the people. Um, he created light and dark, and he called the dark night and the light day that's kind of weird but you know like he created a bunch of stuff okay got it Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and then we uh perhaps (laughs) we hear from somewhere else that oh actually um you know all this stuff didn't occur uh over the course of six days um the uh, universe has been around for a really long time and uh it, it seems like the account of how we got to this place in the world from 
science uh, is very different from that creation account. So what do we do with that? And so I think, you know, a lot of scholars, I think appropriately, have sort of taken their cue from you know the <laughs> the suggestion that science gives us that the earth is pretty old um mm. and maybe uh gone back and rethought like what is the text really saying to us what is mm. genesis 1 really trying to convey is this about god creating the world in 6 days 6000 years ago or is it about something else mm. um do you think that like the professors such as John Walton or these people, do you, do you believe that they're coming from a place where they would view that the six, when, when they're looking at this, is the six day creation a possibility? Or do you think that they've like, would it, would it be, this can't be because of science. So what would a, what would a possible explanation be? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I, I think so. Uh, Longman this week, he took a uh, view of creation that is very much compatible with uh, evolution and, uh, you know, the other findings of, of science. But on other issues, he took, you know, um, some pretty unpopular, some pretty um, counter-cultural uh, views um, on issues like violence and sexuality um, mm. that he, he said, look, you know, I'm uncomfortable with, with this, but this is what I believe the Bible says. Yeah. And the fact that it contradicts um, what a lot of us feel based on our, you know, current uh, perspectives, our cultural norms, our, um, our understanding of what seems to be ethical and true, like that's, that's not relevant, you know, like first we need to understand what the Bible really says. And then, you know, if, as Christians, we, we need to believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I think when, when someone like that then comes and says to you, look, you know, I've studied very deeply uh, Genesis 1, and I just don't believe it's saying what the young earth creationists think it's saying. Um, I, you know, I, I believe that they are sincere in that. I don't believe that they are just trying to make the Bible more palatable. Mm-hmm. Good dear. Yeah. So, uh, John Walton wrote the NIV application commentary for Genesis. Um, it's the one with like the pale yellow spine to it. You've probably seen it in your pastor's office. <laughs> or had it in um, the walls of Carmel too. <laughs> yeah. And he, uh, he talks about the flood in that book. Now he's got an upcoming book on the flood coming out, which perhaps has like a totally different perspective, mm-hmm. but he goes into, he says, look, here's a bunch of reasons why it really seems like worldwide flood just like it it doesn't make sense it doesn't add up it doesn't work Mm. and and i think he makes a really good case but he also says you know if i'm persuaded that the bible says there is a worldwide flood i have to believe that because Mm. i'm an evangelical and i believe the bible and so Mm. um he he leaves it kind of ambiguous i think at that point like what what he actually believes about the flood right, but he right. says you know like if you can convince me that this was a global flood um and that's certainly on the table for him he he is willing to believe that no matter how implausible it looks mm. whereas on genesis 1 people like longman and walton are are pretty convinced it's not about a 6000 year old earth created in six days. So I think that that's, uh, yeah, that, that holds a lot of weight for me. Mm -hmm. Can I jump in Dave? Yeah, for sure. 
I think what you asked, Dave, is a great question because it's about like intent or like the question is like, why are scholars getting to the opinions they're getting to? And I, that that really, like, obscures this debate over seven days versus evolution. Hmm. On both sides, there's an assumption of ill intent or a cynicism hmm. that, I, to be honest, I grew up with. I grew up learning about uh, that the Bible says it and science says <clears throat> it, that it's created in seven days. And I read lots of books on it and was very convinced. But it was all based on... Those who are arguing for evolution are trying to rip sure. down the Bible. Sure. That, like, the intent, they didn't go into science to find objective conclusions. They went to try to destroy hmm. the Bible or, or morality or, or s- they had an agenda. Mm-hmm. And then there's an assumption on the other side that yeah, those totally, totally. who believe in seven-day creationism, it's because... It's part of a narrative where you can deny climate change or you can win a culture war over same-sex marriage. And I think it really has made us unable to talk about what do we actually think the Bible's saying while assuming that somebody who disagrees with us is doing it out of an agenda. I'm mm-hmm. sure some people are, but mm. it I don't think it's been helpful in my own life and I don't think it's helpful in this debate. So it's a good question to ask. Yeah. Good. Mm. It's good. Thanks, Tanner. It's a good uh, mindset to have. Does one of you guys want to lead us through, or together lead us through? Mm. So, okay, so we're we're in a place where we're unsure about Genesis one and and science. What science tells us about the Earth, how they mesh. So, what what is the explanation of how to how to read Genesis one? I'll give some of the views first, and then Joel will kind of go into how Walton and. Uh, probably both of us over <laughs> over in Vancouver. Don't read into that, <laughs> folks. Sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Don't read the agenda. <laughs> no, but uh, there has traditionally been, you know, young earth creationists. You look at the genealogies, you count back to Adam. It's seven days of creation. Therefore, the earth is around 5,000 years old. I think that's what I grew up with and probably all of us, I assume. Yeah. Uh, then there's kind of a version of that, that, oh, the days represent ages uh, and that maybe the earth is very old, but humanity is very young because mm. genealogies are correct. So Adam is only 5,000 years old. And I think that view is losing a little bit of steam in my head, but maybe I'm wrong. And then there's kind of a divine, what is it, intelligent design community? And then there would be that evolution in some form uh, would be compatible with Christianity and therefore, or the Genesis account. So the earth might be billions of years old and humanity might be hundreds of thousands, you know, depending on what scientists are saying. And that would be the Catholic church, a lot of Protestants, but definitely not the communities that we grew up in. So the question really bears on how do you read Genesis 1? What do you think it's just history or do you think it's saying something else? So, Joel, I'd love to hear how you read it. And then Dave or Jackson, I would love to hear not not a response to Joel, but just how do you read it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think from Walton's perspective, and I, I agree with this, I think the the fundamental, like the first question we need to ask is, what would the original readers have understood when they read this text or when they heard this text? 
um, what would it have conveyed to them? Um, because of course we're we're reading this in a very different culture. We're reading this, you know, several thousand years later, and so what the you know literal words on the page convey to us what they sound like they're saying at first blush. Um, I think very possibly uh, maybe very different from what they intended to convey and what they would have conveyed to the original intended audience. Um, so I'll, I think I'll pause there. I, I just, I'm curious, like, are we all on board with that? Do, do we disagree about that? That's the issue. Is it, Dave, is it the issue for you? Yeah, I, I don't think I'm exactly answering a specific question, but what I what leads me is for people that are trying to present the position of the Bible allows in older Earth, uh, or like evolution, or just mm-hmm. Genesis being taken not totally literally. Um, you start or you end up in what I think is a spiral of calling into question more and more of scripture with less and less reasoning. I think Hmm. like you start with Genesis one, which is written like poetry and it's, you know, it, it, it can sort of maybe lend itself to other interpretations and, and you can back it up with other ancient myths and, 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 you know, it, you, you can create this nice sounding case that's like, no, this is like a reasonable mm-hmm. thing, right? But then you start having to go further and further with Adam and Eve, you know, and, and the Garden of Eden. And was Adam created from the dust and was Eve taken from Adam and, mm. and was the flood and Noah. And, and then you start getting into, you know, the New Testament writers building theology off of these characters and what happened. And I... Th- I worry about this, yeah, just like a spiral of we got to keep going. Do you think that's fair or is that crazy? I I think that's an understandable concern. Um, I I don't think that that is what these scholars are doing. Hmm. If if we say we want to take the text literally, I mean – um, you know, I could give you examples of uh, language in the Bible that is clearly figurative, right, <laughs> um, <laughs> or clearly poetic, and you would say, oh, of course, we're not going to take that literally. It clearly wasn't meant to be taken literally, right? <laughs> um, and so the, the issue is that, you know, thousands of years later in a very different culture, it's not immediately clear to us um, what is the literal sense of this specific text? And mm-hmm. what, like, where are they speaking figuratively? Where are they alluding to something that in their culture everyone would have known, right? That would have been like as clear, you know, like it would have been like alluding to 9 11 or Star Wars, right? Or like something like that. But maybe thousands of years later is, you know, not immediately clear to someone who's just picking up this book and reading it, right? Yeah. 
And so, yeah, like I think, you know, it, it's really, I really believe that this effort from uh, modern scholars is not coming from a place of, you know, like trying to find room within the text to uh, take a view that will be compatible with modern science. It's coming from a place where, number one, we just want to understand as best we can what did this mean? What is it? What is the author trying to say? So I think uh, like a, an example that is helpful, like, you know, we, we all know about Galileo, right? And the church um, saying that uh, this guy's a heretic, he's wrong. He's saying that the sun is at the center of the universe, whereas we know, because we've read the Bible, that the the earth is at the center of the universe, right? It's very clear. Now, like when we look at the texts that they cite <laughs> that made it very clear to them and they sincerely believed it was very clear like that the earth is at the center of the universe like we're like oh come on i mean really <laughs> like that's not what it says it's speaking metaphorically obviously <laughs> right mm-hmm. um but so i think that like in in this view um science finding things that contradicts our understanding of scripture um that's not an indication that oh geez like we have to go back to the bible and like find some way for this to still be true um Mm -hmm. but it's a suggestion that so like one of two things are true right like if we're christians if we believe the bible is the word of god and science is contradicting what we believe the bible says either the science is wrong or our understanding of the bible is wrong right okay yeah we're we're either misreading what we're seeing, you know, in the fossils, in the geological strata, all that stuff, or we're we're misunderstanding what we're reading from the Bible. And so, you know, if we are Bible readers, Bible scholars, like we we want to go back and check. Oh, like maybe I've been misreading this the whole time. Uh, in the same way that the church was reading into these texts, this uh, belief that the earth was at the center of the universe. So I think that's that's the spirit in which uh, the scholars are undertaking <laughs> this effort to uncover a better, uh, more complete, more accurate uh, understanding of what the text really says, spurred on by the suggestion from science that maybe the earth is not as young as we thought it was. I think, Joel, that's something that I'm working through right now and places a certain, like, not I, I don't think hierarchy is the word, but think hierarchy for now, <laughs> of how knowledge shapes faith. And that before the 19th century, when Darwin came up with this and his, and his mates, and if, if that hadn't come along, we wouldn't be, would we be asking these questions about, like, can we read Genesis one differently? And with, uh, I think Tanner, maybe you can help me or one of you guys, like if it was a Catholic church that first accepted that no evolution is compatible with this, like, or our faith is compatible with evolution. I'm just wondering, like, why is it that we let this thing, like maybe we could have gone on living forever. Like this, the earth is the center (laughs) of the universe. And that would have been fine. Maybe we could have gone on like without evolution. We'd been fine. But it's just interesting and fascinating to me that we let knowledge prompt our understanding that it's all of a sudden, no, this isn't how God made the world like we've been thinking for the last 1800, well, plus 1800 years. Yeah. Now we can finally figure it out because knowledge is actually the king right now and everything else lives in subjection 
to what we find in science. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying on that. Uh, one point I would mm. say is that it's there's a lot of issues where the church has a consensus for 2,000 years, and creation sure. and seven-day literalism is not one of them. Uh, we We have mm. people from... 200 years after Jesus, 400 years after Jesus, very important people who have shaped the way that the four of us think day by day is because of these thinkers who were strong Christians who said, I don't know, even by the times of my, even by my science, I don't think it was seven days. So it has always been an option. The other thing I would say is Hmm. among our community, there is kind of a skepticism that science is king and everything bows down before it. Except that, I mean, you can say that, or you can say that, thank God that he gave us a book of nature. You know, that I celebrate the fact that God created a universe that he really, really wanted us to discover. Hmm. And so, there is a question aside, I mean, I think that Joel's right, the scholars are coming at it from a text perspective. But for me, I do come at it from a perspective of God gave us a world and I'm not sure why he would trick us by making all the evidence look like the earth is very old and that, you know, that evolution is one of the best evidence theories in science. Like, I'm not sure why he would do that because I believe that God wants us to discover his universe. So the cynicism of, ah, we're just bowing down to science, I, I'm not sure it, I think you can flip that and you can see it as a gift. Um, and I, I think, I mean, the, what I, the other important piece of it is, um, you know, when you read Walton's, uh, work and I think, you know, everyone listening to this should read, uh, John Walton's The Lost World of Genesis one, which, uh, lays out his, his understanding of what the text is trying to communicate to us. Now, the other, the other thing, or probably the, the primary thing, uh, that has really informed his, uh, understanding beyond like what the the understanding that was available uh, to us in the past is other extra biblical sources so Babylonian texts Egyptian texts you know Canaanite like all all of these other uh, ancient Near Eastern documents that were circulating and and you know the oral traditions around them were circulating um, long before the final text of Genesis that we have was written down. And so these other sources from other religions, um, I think, you know, you can think of them as as forming this sort of meta culture around Israel. Um, and, you know, like having the status of like, you know, a Star Wars. <laughs> I keep I, 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 th- I just think that's kind of like our our primary sort of like myth, right, that we we look at as a culture today, right? Like, I mean, they were just these really big things that if you come along in, uh, I'm not sure which date, <laughs> BC, and you're going, you're Moses or whoever <laughs> you're writing down, like this, no, this is what, how it actually happened, right? This is how God created mm-hmm. the world. You You can't help but be responding to, all of these other stories, right? Well, you know, everyone who hears this, or at least, you know, the a lot of the people who hear this, they, they were aware of the Babylonian story of how the world is created. And so they understand when you say, actually, it was like this, you know, you're 
reacting to that story in some ways, you're agreeing with that story, perhaps in some ways, disagreeing in other ways, right? The ability to compare the biblical story to these other ancient Near Eastern creation stories, I think is very illuminating. It's, it's, it's heavy, it's heady stuff, right? But mm-hmm. Dave, what signs do you see in the text that you think it's trying really clearly to tell us this is exactly how it happened. Uh, the, how long? How long winded? Ooh, <laughs> that's mean, a good question, Tim. Like when I read Genesis, you can't break it down. It keeps folding back on itself. It it doesn't go more than one or two chapters without referencing what just happened before, and it's hard to dice it up and say, "Here's a line where." It switched from from telling a a myth with a point to here's now it's recounting history that we believe in because it keeps reaching back from the point that we say this is where it's history back to the past saying remember when this happened or this person from this I don't know it's it's really hard to to find that line. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a good point. And I so I, I I don't want to present this as like what someone like John Walton is not saying is the Bible starts off with this fun little story about uh, God creating the world, and it's not really true, but you know it, it makes some nice theological points. And then like oh, and at a certain point we flip over into this is things that actually happened, right? Like that's that's not what uh, John Walton is saying. And I I want to maybe just go a little bit into like what what is uh, Walton's basic sort of understanding of what Genesis one is conveying, and then maybe we can get to like where I think there are problems with this view. <laughs> But um, first of all, so John Walton reads Genesis 1 as having the structure of a temple inauguration text, right? So this is like a literary form that would have had other examples in ancient Near Eastern literature. When people read this or heard this, you know, it's like reading a limerick, you know, like... If I start off saying there once was a man from Nantucket, like, you know, you guys know where this is going, right? (laughs) You know how to take this, right? So -hmm. what Walton is arguing is that in the minds of ancient Near Eastern people, and specifically the Israelites, creation was not about moving from non-existence, no matter, into now there is physical matter, that's not what they were interested in. Now, if you ask them who created physical matter, obviously it was God, duh. But this story um, is about the establishment of function. So uh, when God separates light from darkness and he calls the light day and he calls the darkness night, he's establishing the functions of the world for the purposes of his people, his creation. And when he uh, separates the waters below from the waters above, and he puts a vault uh, between them, um, he's establishing, like, out of this uh, order is going to come 
weather, right? Like the, the waters above are going to rain down. Like that's, that's going to create the conditions under which people can plant crops, flourish on the earth. When God, you know, brings up the land and the plants, you know, like this, these are the, the, this, he's establishing the functional order uh, in which people are going to be able to um, farm, eat, live, right? And then the people who he creates in his image, like, you know, people want to know, like, what, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? I mean, when, when you establish a temple, when you build a temple, you put in that temple an image of the God, an idol, right? The idol demonstrates that this is a place that, you know, the, the authority of the God is over this. This is the, the dwelling place of the God. And the seventh day, God rests. And, and what does that mean? God takes a break? Is God tired? Does he, does he need some R&R? No. So what it means is, you know, like once, once the temple is constructed and it's been consecrated, everything is in place, everything's in order, now it can start uh, fulfilling its role, which is to be the place where the God dwells and does his work, right? Um, and so the, you know, the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle is the footstool of God, and, and God's presence is resting in that place. So, yeah, sorry, that was a lot. Uh, so I was very compressed. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. But I, I just, so in that view, um, the creation account perhaps represents something that uh, maybe symbolically took place at a certain point. Um, in the development of humanity, where God, at a certain point, you know, endows us with his image, makes us his image bearers, and takes up his residence in the world as his temple. And so whatever happened up to that point to sort of like get all the physical pieces in place is is really not the concern of of the text. The concern is, you know, uh, there the earth is formless and void. It's empty. It's 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 non-existent in in the sense that it has not been ordered for its intended purpose. Um, and now there is order. There is function. All the pieces can mesh together. It's it, you know like finally the earth is open for business. Right. Like the the purpose for which it is intended has begun. So I hope I, I hope mm-hmm. I sort of did that justice. <laughs> At the risk of turning this into a two hour podcast. So Genesis one, you know, it, it, it's this, like I said, it's it, the positions you guys have brought forth, they can make sense. They it's, you can look and say, yeah, that, that could be once it hits Adam and Eve's story, what is the what's the rationale behind that because now you've got okay but now we're we're no longer dealing with a temple yeah. inauguration yeah. we're now dealing with a story and god yeah. god made two people and from them come everyone totally. and we can tr- and we can trace their line yeah. and, like what What's the explanation? No, that's, it's a super great question. There's so many lines. I mean, you meet like Tim Keller. Tim Keller thinks that evolution's great, but that 
at Adam and Eve, that's when the Bible starts not speaking in exalted language, but trying to describe very literally, you know. And then somebody else will say, no, it, it's right after Adam. Um, Adam is an archetype, and he's a, he's a symbol for all humanity's choice to, you know, to be given the mantle of the image of God and then to, to rebel. And then they would say, okay, at, at Noah or at Adam's sons or something, we start getting into it. And then there's some people who say, it's after Noah, and some people at Abraham. And there's just a wide diversity. I mean, it... It isn't automatic, is what I'm saying, to accept Genesis 1 as evolution compatible, but it's, it doesn't mean yeah. you have to deny Adam and Eve's existence. Like, uh, Jack, how, how do you see that? Would you, would you have some kind of line, or would you say, yeah, I'm curious what you think about this? I think my line comes with the history of the accessibility of scripture. It's, it's not new, but it's not significantly old that like every Christian can have a Bible in their hand. And so I think that like I briefly read like that, what you guys are talking about with John Walden in a Christianity today article. And just about like, does this become scholarly elitism about how like certain people can have access to the ancient year? near miss or like they make it more complicated when they learn the language but my where i land with this and it's not really a specific chapter but it happens in the context of how the bible is interpreted because if you put a bible in the community of a people group that doesn't really have an orientation but like you go to a, a tribe that Wycliffe is attempting to translate for and you give them a bible and it's like okay here you go you guys can decide where this becomes literal and where this stays exalted language. And I just think I land in a space of thinking maybe it's quite all right that they think it from cover to cover it's literal and that it's a history that it doesn't just say that God made the world, but it says how God made the world. Maybe that's really okay. So you you mentioned uh, scholarly elitism, right? And I I, I think I like yeah. I, I get where that's coming from. Um, I mean, I think like the so the question is like like fundamentally like what what is the really important thing that God wants us to understand out of a given text? Like you know like I think I think we all agree basically. <laughs> so the point of Genesis one is God created the world, right? God created it all. It was God. Definitely God, right? And like, oh, you might think the sun and the moon are pretty big, you know, important things. Nope, they're not. It's just God. Like, you know, that's, I think that is the essential theological mm. point, which this text is trying to convey. And I think has conveyed very successfully to people, you know, throughout history in a wide variety of cultures. Whether or not um, the world was created in seven literal days, uh, I, I don't see that as a salvation issue. Right. I see that as, you know, like something that we can reasonably disagree on. But I think what scholars like John Walton do for us is they open up a greater, a deeper understanding that was just not available in a lot of church history. It doesn't mean that, you know, people in the past 
didn't understand the fundamental truths that the Bible is trying to convey, but we can understand greater, deeper truths, more complete truths about it through scholarly work. Um, yeah. And to, to add on, I would just say, with the New Testament, the evangelical community loves context loves to learn about, like, what was going on? Oh, Philippi was a Roman colony. That's why Paul uses that language about citizenship in heaven versus, you know, or, oh, Jesus is Lord. That's because they used to say Caesar is Lord. And all those things, you could have read the New Testament for years and never picked up on that stuff, and you would have still gotten the salvation message. But when you do learn about the Maccabees, about Caesar, about all these things, you go, oh my goodness, there's whole passages that are illuminated now that I just simply didn't understand. And so I just, I think it's funny that we just, we love it so much for the New Testament. But when it comes to the Old Testament, the idea that there are other texts surrounding it that it's responding to is somehow vaguely threatening or elitist or something like that. I, I find that difficult where we would we would never say it's elitist if a pastor brought in, you know, what a coin that said that Caesar is Lord and pointed out the similarities in the statements. That would just be illuminating. But in the Old Testament it's elitism and maybe this is because of my concentrations in Old Testament, but I get a little sensitive when we get mad at Old Testament scholars for things that New Testament scholars get pats on the back for. <laughs> I think we better wrap up. <laughs> Can I ask one more question before we wrap up? Yeah. Briefly, I would love to hear from people. When you read Genesis 1, what has it given you? What what gift has the text given you? When I put aside this debate, this whatever this is, I love Genesis 1. And I think it just uh, the word create keeps coming up. And if we're made in God's image, what does God do? I think he creates. And so what should we do? Hmm. Maybe we should create. So I've been wondering about that. That's from Andy Crouch, by the way. You can <laughs> look at his book, Culture Making, published by... Uh, no, I'm not doing that right now. I love that the best things... When, when the Bible wants to describe something that's beautiful beyond comprehension... I think it turns into exalted language when it talks about Jesus um, and John prone at his feet in Revelation and describes Jesus. It's just the most incredible language uh, uh, for this man who's standing in front of him. And so I love reading Genesis 1. I love the excitement in the passage that it was good. It was good. It was good. I love that. I love the Hmm. just the exalted that it was an incredible beautiful, praiseworthy thing that God created our world. And I, whether that is literal or not, I don't think it is, but I think that exalted language comes through no matter what your opinion is. I don't know. What do you guys think? I've never been like, I'm, I definitely am not the biggest fan of Genesis one, just as like a whatever, but I, uh, I, the thing that the the thing that I like about the way that it describes God creating, whether it's telling this is how he did it or not, he creates something and then he shapes it. 
like he creates light before he creates the sun and he mm. creates like there's water and then he molds it into the seas. And mm. like, I don't know. It just, it seems interesting to me and cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I definitely appreciate the mystery of it. Like the, <laughs> the weirdness and the, um, the, the, like you, you get the sense, uh, that, you know, the author is trying to understand, understand and describe something that really can't be put into words. <laughs> and, and I appreciate that. Um, mm. I, I really like that, uh, God keeps calling creation good, which, um, in light of, uh, other mm. ancient Near Eastern texts, uh, you know, really stands out as, as a yeah. distinctive. Um, so <laughs> I, I think that's great. Um, I, I would like to just, you know, apologize for all of the ways that I have misrepresented the, uh, the perspectives of John Walton and Terper Longman over the course of this discussion. Um, and I, you know, yeah. Welcome to podcast. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks so much, Joel, for joining us. Uh, yeah, we we should do it again. Do this again. Maybe maybe one more time. Another episode. (laughs) Okay, see you all in a week. It's yeah. seven days. <laughs> see, I'm being metaphorical, not literal. Oh. Hey, uh, We would love to hear from you on our Facebook page, Desiring Brethren, or also emailing us at desiringbrethrenpodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. I'm David Short. I'm Jackson Bryan. I'm Tanner Hoff. And my name is Joel Short. Short.